Hey, everybody, it's Bax. Baxi's musical podcast today is brought to you by the folks at Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary. They're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com. That's CannaProvisions.com. Adults 21, please and please consume responsibly. And now, time for Baxi's Musical Podcast. For my money, two of the most important and influential New York City punk bands were both the Ramones, obviously, and the Misfits. In fact, it's hard to overlook the significance of either band. And while there may not seem to be much connectivity between the two bands, other than the fact that they are the two most historically significant American punk bands in history, what do they have in common? Gee, I don't know. Other than the fact they both shared the same producer late in their careers or both played CBGBs, but after that, I don't know. I mean, one created its own subgenre by combining what they learned from the other band and infusing it with their love of B-level horror films, and the other band were the frickin' Ramones. Yeah, they don't seem to have anything in common but yet they do in fact they have a buttload of common ground the truth is that for the last several decades one of the primary connection points between these two iconic bands is today's guest john caffiero since the 1990s john caffiero has been the manager and one of the lead collaborators for the misfits who for the first time in years have begun touring with their original lead singer glenn danzig he's also the member of the estate of the late dd ramon in fact His connection with the Ramones runs so deep that when the band received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2012 Grammys, it was John Caffiero who accepted that honor on their behalf. John Caffiero is also the leader of a band called Osaka Popstar, a punk rock supergroup, which during the release of their debut album included the Misfits' Jerry Only, Des Kadena from Black Flag, plus Ivan Julian and Marky Bell from Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Marky Bell, of course, would later become Marky Ramone, when he joined the Ramones in 1978. This month, Osaka pop star has released a new EP of cover songs entitled Ear Candy, with a band that includes guys who have played with the Smithereens, Bob Mould, Roxy Music, Super Chunk, Sparks, and the Dictators. In other words, the man has a lot of connections, a lot of stories, and both feet in the center of two of the most influential bands of all time. This is my conversation with John Caffiero on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, Bax. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, absolutely. How awesome. about me? You sound perfect. Sounds like you're practically in a state over or so. Excellent. <laughs> hey, it's... <laughs> it's uh, thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Actually, I think the last time I spoke to you, you were uh, doing a radio tour with Dr. Demento, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I had just produced the uh, Dr. Demento covered in punk record, which had a couple of Osaka pop star tracks on it. In fact, I remember that. And you know, it, it's funny because you know Dr. Demento is one of those guys that I grew up listening to as a kid. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I blamed him for putting me into radio. So it's all on him. All right. Well, that's a good thing. We're <laughs> we're fortunate that he did that. So I want to I want to uh, congratulate you on the the new EP Ear Candy. I think it's, thank you. I think it's great. Uh, I love the version 
of uh, All Your Toys by the Monkees. I mean, I think that's just a great song anyway, but you did a really good song, a, a good version of it. But the, oh, thank you. But the song that really leaps out to me is the original, Lost and Found. I actually think it's the, the best part of the record. Wow. I'm really happy to hear you say that because it's in pretty heavy company with uh, Sugar Sugar, All of Your Toys, and <laughs> I Think I Love You, but... Thank you so much. I'm really proud of that song, and I kind of felt like it had a kinship with some of those classic pop songs, and uh, that's why they're all kind of intertwined on this uh, record. It's all ear candy. It does have an ear candy quality about it, not just in the title of the of the album, but but uh, but really, it's a great pop song with a, with an incredible band. You know, that's the thing about a soccer pop star is, is the the band that has been playing behind you. I, I realize it's been a, like a revolving door of of people and intentionally, but yeah. man, if you got, I mean, either you've got a Rolodex the size of Alaska or you're just, you know, just be connected because you've had amazing help with these records over the years. Thanks. Yeah. You know, everything I do is a labor of love and, um, I just kind of seek out what I think will be the right approach to get the result that I'm looking for. I mean, I have a background as a, a film and video director, and I kind of approach everything that I do almost like I'm directing a movie. Yeah. And so I'm casting people in the band when I'm recording stuff. And um, I, I'm very fortunate to have great people to work with to help me achieve my vision. Well, the, the visuals are actually very impressive, and they have been for the other two uh, records that, that I remember. Actually, all the things that you've done, you know, visually have been fantastic. This, the the latest one, it's an anime themed packaging, but you know, there's a lot that went into this. And tell me a little bit about your thought process in, in taking those specific types of, of visuals for this project. Um, well, I'm kind of an art junkie and I just absolutely love artwork. I collect artwork. I like to create artwork. I art direct stuff. I'm a former animator myself and I think that artwork really lends itself perfectly to helping to establish the world of a record. I mean, packaging of a record, that's why I'm one of the reasons I'm so happy that physical media still exists, is because the packaging is just another component that transports you into the world of that record. And I always feel that's extremely important. I love to have strong visuals. I like everything about it, the front cover, the back cover, the interior, to really feel like it is bringing you into another world and expanding on what it is that you're listening to. So for this particular record, the cover artwork features a new character called Sweetie Candy Vigilante, <laughs> who um, is a new comic book that was written and created actually by Suzanne Caffiero, and I produced. Any relation? Yes, uh, Suzanne's actually my wife. Oh, okay. And um, she, one day, you know, she explained to me this idea that she had of this character, Sweetie, and the storyline in the world, and I loved it. And so I just encouraged her to write it, and I produced the comic book. And so Sweetie appears on the cover of the record, and the download card of all the physical versions, the CD as well as the vinyl, come with a download of a 32-page variant version of issue number one of Sweetie Candy Vigilante, and later in the fall, uh, Sweetie is actually going to go wide to comic book shops on a bi-monthly basis. There's wow. six issues all ready to print. You know, I, I, um, I, I, res I respect that so much because y you and I are kind of on the same you know, wavelength. You know, we grew up where those visuals, those inserts into records, you know, were almost as interesting as sometimes the music themselves. I, I talked to uh, Jello Biafra about a year ago. 
and all those records from uh, you know the Dead Kennedys all had that stuff where you know you'd spend hours just looking at the posters as you're listening to the record and 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 it was like that was like the best part sometimes is is like what you got along with it is so much more satisfying than than an MP3 or something you may download on Spotify is like you know actually having a physical item to to view and read it's like you know, that's the whole experience that it's nice to see those things coming back, but it's 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 sad to see that so much was released without it. Yeah, I, I agree. I really like to make a very well-rounded world and have everything kind of connect. In fact, it's funny because um, it really comes full circle. Even on this EP, there's a punk cover of Sugar Sugar by the Archies, and in the comic book, in the Sweetie Candy Vigilante comic book that comes with it, there's a scene where Sweetie, she basically is this beautiful ultra-sweet but psychotic person who wants to make the world less salty and more sweet, and she is kind of otherworldly, and she makes these handcrafted confectionery weapons that are lethal to bad people or delicious (laughs) to good people. And there's a scene in the comic where she literally slaughters a bunch of bad guys while listening to Osaka Popstar's cover of Sugar Sugar on a jukebox. That's that's great. I mean, that's so well thought out. That's awesome. Well, so I, I try and have fun with it, and you can see her uh, come to life, and there's an animated music video for the original Lost and Found mm-hmm. that also brings everything full circle. That's going to debut online uh, sometime this week, and it stars Fred Armisen in animated form, and the band, of course, Osaka Pop Star, myself and the band members, and a lot of the surreal characters in the world of, of Osaka Pop Star. Sweetie also makes a cameo in it, and there are nods to the Archies, the Partridge family, and the Monkees in the video. So it kind of encapsulates not only the song, but the whole record. That's very, very cool. The uh, The original band for Osaka Pop Star included you know, Jerry Only from the Misfits, Des Kadena from Black Flag, both Ivan Julian and Marky Ramone, who were both in the Voidoids with Richard Hell uh, yeah. initially. And of course, you know, Marky went on to, to, join, to join the Ramones. Uh, and I want to talk about the, 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 the current lineup in just a second here, but tell me how you got to know these guys. I mean, I know you've had a longstanding, you know, relationship, business relationship with the, uh, the guys from the Misfits and, and the Ramones, but, but how did you pull those guys together to start you off on this project? Well, um, I've known them all for years in different capacities. I mean, I started working with the Misfits by, I was brought in by Geffen Records to direct their music videos when they got signed to Geffen. And we got along really well, and I became the creative director to the band and then eventually became their manager. And then the Ramones, who I was always a huge fan of and has had met as a kid, um, saw what I was doing and said, hey, could you do some of that for us? And I I said, are you kidding me? It would be my honor. It would be my pleasure. So I got to work with them in different capacities over the years. And right around the time that I was thinking about doing Osaka Popstar, I was producing the Misfits Project 1950 record, and I had played them some of the songs and explained some of the ideas that I had in mind and they were all on board and just, you know, totally into it so I dubbed them the American Legends of Punk because Osaka Popstar was always just meant to be my project that would continue to evolve and and involve different members and would always just kind of 
circulate around these different ideas that I wanted to do. But for the debut, it was Osaka Pop Star and the American Legends of Punk. So that's right. the name of the first album. And it was almost like in the mindset of Elvis Costello and the Attractions or Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And it was these incredible punk legends who I was very fortunate to not only be friends with and work with, but that believed in what it is I wanted to do, backing me up in the backing band and helping me to bring to life this bizarre project that I wanted to do. And <laughs> that kind of catapulted the whole thing. The uh, the new band, the new version, you have members of, of bands like the Smithereens and Superchunk and you know Bob Mould and, and Sparks and the Dictators. I mean, that's just as that's a that's a hell of a lineup, too. Tell me about the guys who are playing yeah. with you now. Uh, well, you know, as you've mentioned, it continues to evolve, and there's a lot of different people. And sometimes I will record different tracks with different people for a different vibe or a different sound or a different effect. And, yeah, Dennis Dyken from the Smithereens and Sal from Sparks and Milk and Cookies and uh, Dean from uh, the Dictators and the Voluptuous Heart of Karen Black, they all played a bunch of tracks with me um, that have come out as singles and cuts that were on the Dr. Demento Covered mm -hmm. Punk record, and even uh, one of the bonus tracks that's on the new expanded edition of the debut Osaka Pop Star in the American Legends of Punk. And then for Ear Candy, uh, the, the biggest change is that uh, John Worcester from Super Chunk and Bob Mould's band and the Mountain Goats plays drums. John and I had talked for a long time about doing something together, and we both were available at the same time, and we got together for the sessions, and Dean came on board again, and it just, you know, gelled beautifully. And, and again, I love all the people that I work with, and I'm, I'm fortunate to uh, work with them all in different capacities. But, yeah, it's uh, there's different people involved from time to time. You mentioned obviously the the connection with the Ramones and the and the Misfits, and you know these are these are two iconic bands with remarkable histories. And for example, with the the Misfits, so I want to focus on them for a second. You know, to me, you know, their story is is just it's it's astonishing. You know, it, it's a it's a a small band. They wind up having a a record label. It gets sold to a larger record label, and they get free recording time. And their debut record, which I think is pure genius goes unreleased for years and then yeah. and static age eventually gets released and it's as good if not better than anything they had ever released and and now the band is uh i mean i don't know if if you can say they are officially back but they've done a handful of shows i know they're going to be in uh at riot fest in chicago in september and it includes glenn danzig back with uh, with jerry and and doyle tell me about about that because i mean i know there i mean there's been that's a, I mean, that had to be a very hard thing to put together. These guys have been kind of estranged back and forth for for a while. Tell me about the process of getting them to agree to play again. That was a 14-year process. I always thought it was possible. Uh, I always knew it was just a matter of time. The world did not think it was possible. I did. Um not long before his death, Joey Ramone also was very encouraging to me, knew that it was something I was setting out to do, and he encouraged me. And um, again, I, I always thought it was possible. The world didn't. Mm -hmm. I set the basic, you know, the seeds of it back in, I believe it was 2002. We came very close. It just wasn't the time. It wasn't going to happen at that point. Um, but the fact alone that I'd come as close as I did back then made me even more passionate about knowing this could happen. And it was one of those things where I felt, you know, with the Ramones, 
Sadly, they were never fully appreciated during their lifetime, and I wanted to see that with the Misfits. And I knew that they belonged back together and that they would be really powerful, reunited, and that it would be something that the world would just explode. It'd be like seeing a unicorn or a pegasus or something that you never thought you'd be able to see. So I just continued to, you know, keep feelers out for it. And gradually over time, by January of 2016, uh, Jerry, Glenn, and I had a meeting, and everybody walked out of there saying, we're going to do this. We all agreed to swear ourselves to secrecy. And then we just started formulating where and when the first show would be, and they've been together ever since. They're having a great time with it. The audience is having a great time with it. Music history is being made. They're selling out arenas, stadiums, and it is such an amazing feeling being at those shows because this is an underground punk band, quote-unquote. And, you know, I've seen them at Madison Square Garden, playing to a sold-out house with everybody in the audience singing along. And obviously, to sing along, you must know the material. So these are genuine fans, and it's like that at every show. You hear the entire audience singing these punk classics that obviously have lasted over the years and will continue to outlive all of us, just as the Ramones do. It's amazing seeing them in their prime, enjoying it in their lifetime. Well, that's, that's why I think it's so remarkable because, you know, I mean, this is a band that wasn't around for an awful long period of time, but I mean, the misfits are so iconic. Just, I mean, you talk about visuals, just, you know, just the, uh, the, the, the skull imagery of that band has lasted a lifetime, uh, several lifetimes. And like I said, you know, I'm such a huge fan of, of static age and the story of that, you know, them, you know, putting it together for the box set and literally having the tape fall apart in their hands as they're trying to, you know, restore this great record, uh, you know, to me is, is, uh, is, is amazing. So the fact that they are back and playing together, you know, having never had a chance to see them in their original form is just, you know, I mean, it's a real exciting thought of, uh, that, that they're back and, and, and enjoying themselves doing it. That's awesome. They really are. And and honestly, it couldn't have come at a better time because even though they were great back in the day, now with all of the uh, years of finally honing their crafts that they all did on their own, when they come together, it is just an absolute explosion. They look great. They sound great. It's just it's something to behold, and I would encourage everybody to take in a show uh, whenever you can, because you're seeing music history being made and something that no one ever thought could happen. I mean, literally, we kept it a secret, and when the first show was announced, it was not far off from April Fool's Day, and there were a lot of people that had known me for years that mm-hmm. were like, at first, I just thought, like, is this an April Fool's Day thing? Like, how the hell did this ever even come to be? I would have never thought it was possible, but I always did. And, um, you know, they're they're back together. I mean, I don't know how long it will last, but, you know, they're, they're having a great time with it, and there's no talk of, uh, you know, stopping for as long as they're enjoying themselves. It'll continue. That's great. I've you know, I got to tell you, during the, uh, during the pandemic, when, when nobody was leaving the house and no one was getting haircuts, I was about a good five to ten days away from a full-length uh, devil lock. I was so excited <laughs> that I actually could actually almost do it. Like, oh, I'm almost there. I'm, like, I'm inches away from, from being, uh, like, Jerry Only's son. But That's I, so funny. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, my hair became so long, I, I looked like I could have been in a black metal band. <laughs> so I want to ask you about uh, another thing that I saw. I was on uh, YouTube the other day. I saw an interview that you had done 
it was a uh, it was an art show of uh, stuff that had been done by by Didi Ramon. And I mean, I, I know you, like you know, art is very very important to you, and you, and you were kind of curating this interview about Didi's art, and a lot of it's never really been seen by most people. But the guy was actually a very very talented graphic artist. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Didi was. Um... I guess you'd categorize him as an outsider artist. And I mean, he wrote the song Outsider for the Ramones, and that kind of speaks for itself. And he was an amazing artist. I kind of feel like while he has a completely original and unique style, I almost see like shades of like Basquiat in it. Mm. And um, his work is fantastic. I'd even had the opportunity to tell him that. I'm, I was uh, honored to have been at the, the party that they had before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and I even spoke to Dee Dee a bit about his artwork, which was not very popular at that time, and not that many people knew he was doing it. And I told him that I really liked it and appreciated it, and he was thrilled to hear that. And then years later, in managing Dee Dee's estate and working with Dee Dee's widow, Barbara, I've helped to recover and... Um, curate art shows of Dee Dee's work, you know, some of it that had thought to have been lost. There were a lot of pieces that I won't go into the whole story, but there was somebody that was kind of holding on to them that didn't own them, that had them. And I worked for many years to recover those for his estate. And um, that was probably actually the art show that you saw the interview for. Yeah. But I've done several, uh, curated several Dee Dee Ramone art shows in conjunction with Barbara, and um, it's been my pleasure because I love Dee Dee's artwork. I have one of his paintings I'm looking at right now on my wall, and um, I think he really was one of those Renaissance people that was able to tackle any form of art, and if it was something that he was passionate about, he was able to do it. He was an amazing songwriter. He was an amazing performer. He was an amazing visual artist. He even wrote books. Yeah, Dee Dee's artwork is amazing, and we hope to do another, to have another Dee Dee art show at some point um, in the not-too-distant future, now that the world is reopening again. You know, when I was uh, you know, reading about you, know, you running the the estate for you know, Dee Dee in particular, I kept thinking about uh, the whole story about Chinese rocks, and I mean, that's a song that he wrote uh, mostly himself. Richard Hell gave him a, a little bit of help with it. But it was a song that was, you know, for all intents and purposes, appropriated by Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. And I wonder if, if that is, when it comes to his estate, whether that song in particular is still something that is uh, in contention, or has that ever been resolved as far as, you know, who owns that? Because I mean, at one point, I mean, you know, Johnny himself was pretty much taking ownership of, him, uh, of it himself. What is the story on that song, and, and where does that song lie now? Uh, the story behind the song is that uh, Dee Dee wrote it and um, wanted the Ramones to record it. And Dee Dee was hanging a lot around with the Heartbreakers a lot at the time. And, you know, they were all involved in drugs for a period. Not the Ramones, but the Heartbreakers and Dee Dee to an extent as well, of course. And sadly, later on in his life, after being clean for years, he tried it again and it took his life. Um, but basically, Dee Dee wrote Chinese Rocks, wanted the Ramones to record it, and then Johnny Ramone was against it because he felt, we're not doing a drug song, and I'm not recording that, and we're not doing it on our record. So then Richard Hell wrote one verse for it, finishing it, and the Heartbreakers started doing it, and the song started to get popular. And then as soon as the song started to get popular, then Johnny Ramone realized, we can't have the, the Heartbreakers getting popular with a song that uh, Dee Dee wrote. We need to do this. So then the Ramones finally recorded Chinese Rocks for the end of the century album produced by Phil Spector and the rest is history. But, uh, 
it, it's a Ramon song. Uh, the Heartbreakers played it for a while. Uh, Richard does have a hand in the publishing for his contribution to it, but it is primarily written by Dee Dee, and there's really no dispute over it. The only dispute really uh, that existed was in that Johnny Ramone refused to allow the Ramones to record it until he saw the song actually was gaining popularity. One of the things that uh, that I've always read you know, about the Ramones is that you know there, there always seemed to be somebody at odds with somebody. And, and it, and it sounds like, you know, Johnny may have been a part of that, that, you know, maybe, I don't know, intentionally, you know, contradictory or, you know, intentionally combative or, or whatever it was. But when you're dealing with a band like that on a business perspective, either whether it's contractual or marketing or whatever it is, there must be different ideas about how things are done. Has that been particularly difficult with the Ramones, or has it been a whole lot easier than that? Uh, do you mean before or after their deaths? Well, it could be either one, really. I would think before their deaths, it'd probably be a whole lot more challenging. Believe it or not, it's the opposite. Because really? when they were alive, even though they would have differences of opinions from time to time, they all knew this was their thing, and they all knew that this was their accomplishment, and they treasured that. So regardless of whatever differences or arguments may have been going on, they would always pull together as a band and do what they had to do. Um, And without being ungracious, I will just say that I think that things actually became even more tumultuous in their absence because they weren't there to put the brakes on and make sure that things would go the way that they have. Mm-hmm. Certainly not in Dee Dee's estate. Dee Dee's estate has escaped that, um, and it's one of the reasons why I continue to work with Dee Dee's estate. But, you know, anything great, there's always going to be complications. But ironically, as tumultuous as people uh, believe the Ramones' relationships were, they always pulled together as a band. They always knew this was their thing, and they always treasured that and made sure that it was handled properly. And if anything, I think that some of the danger came when they were no longer here to speak for themselves. Yeah, okay, so, I mean, I remember 1977 very clearly, and people starting to play the Ramones or starting to bring a record you know, to school or whatever it might be, and people being kind of, you know, shocked. And, and, and you know, I mean, those early days of punk were pretty shocking for everybody. But after time, especially now, it's funny to me how people have really softened up and say, I love the Ramones and I've always loved the Ramones. And, you know, it's an important band for a lot of people, including some of the biggest artists in the world who all cite them as being one of the best bands they ever saw. And then one of the most influential bands that they that they loved. Yeah. Oh, it's very true. Look, when I was growing up. As a a teenager, and even before I was a teenager, I always loved the Ramones. And when I would tell people that, it was kind of like, oh, seriously? And I even remember in high school when I was, like, recruiting people for my own punk bands and stuff that I wanted to do. And I would explain I want to do something like the Ramones, and people would be like, oh, you got to be kidding me with that. And they never really were fully appreciated during their lifetime, in my opinion. Towards the end, when it was announced that they were retiring, a lot of you know, heavy hitters in the music industry started to come out and acknowledge them and speak up for them. But it was really in their death that they fully became recognized. I mean, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after Joey died. And then more and more people started to take notice after Dee Dee died. And then after Johnny died. And then after all of that, they received the Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. And it was just one of those things where 
the world started to catch up with them much later, and they were ahead of their times. But I think that the music will live forever. And um, again, it's it's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to see the Misfits doing what they're doing, because they are better than ever, and now they're bigger than ever, and it's such a satisfying thing to see these guys who I admire so much and really appreciate and consider friends experiencing this during their lifetime where the Ramones didn't get that opportunity. And and oddly enough, like I said, Joey Ramone was one of the people encouraging me, knowing that I wanted to do this. Yeah. And, you know, he, he didn't think he was going to die, but it was almost... Um, you know, it's, it was almost like a prediction in many ways. I mean, one of the things he said to me is, while they're still young enough to really do this, you know, and then, you know, it wasn't long after that Joey passed away. Well, you know, if uh, any of those guys, uh, whether it's, you know, Marky or uh, any of the Misfits guys have already got some free time in their hands and they're not doing something, I'd love to talk to them someday. Those are guys have been hard to get. Uh, sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's intentional. You know, they're elusive. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, I, def I definitely know that. Again, the Osaka pop star record, Ear Candy, is a lot of fun. And, and the original song, still my favorite uh, song on the, on the whole thing, uh, Lost and Found. It's a great, great song, John. You've done, a, you've, you've done a beautiful job with this again. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, Bax. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you dig it so much. That means a lot. Absolutely. I, I mean, are you guys looking to, 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 to play anywhere? Or you know, what's, what's next for, for uh, Osaka pop star? Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, honestly, had it not been for the pandemic, this record probably would have been released at some point in 2020, and we would have done shows after. But then the pandemic changed everything. Um, I'm not quite sure if we're going to do shows this year. Um, but if not this year, certainly next. Definitely want to do some gigs. And honestly, there's another Osaka pop star record nearly done that'll be coming out in 2023. Awesome. That'd be great. Well, John, I hope when it comes uh, out, you, you give me a chance to talk to you again about it, because it's, it's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too, Bax. You've got great, ta great taste and great knowledge, and I really appreciate your interest, so I'm happy to come back anytime you'd like to have me. That would be great. Thank you, John. Thank you. Have a great day. You, too. Again, the name of the band is Osaka Popstar, and the title of the new EP is called Ear Candy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to know what you think. You can email me at bax at rock102.com. Thanks again to Canada Provisions for their support, and you can support them at either one of their locations or online at canaprovisions.com. Com. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you again next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.